To some of us, classical music might seem like something of and from the past, even though a lot of people listen to it now. But its influence has been huge. It's not only shaped the music of today, but even the way we think and how we structure our society. Ed LeBrock has written a wonderfully playful history of the ways that Western classical music has shaped our culture. He's a musician and the presenter of Weekend Breakfast on ABC Classic. The new book is called Sound Bites. Ed, great to have you back on the show. Oh, Heloise, thanks so much for having me. Lovely to be here. I loved reading this book. It was so fun and interesting, learning about you know all the all the different pathways that Western classical music has taken. Tell us we, where we begin. Is there a moment you can point to and a, a sound that defines that music kicking off? Well, we're going to go back all the way uh, to about four thousand BCE, actually, to the Indus civilization. So the those people, the Harappans and the ancient city of Mohenjo-daro, uh, which we can still visit today in uh, what is now Pakistan. So they were doing a lot of trade through the Fertile Crescent. They were doing a lot of trade with the Mesopotamians. And so there's a lot of similarities culturally between those two civilizations. And most noticeably, music, because um, for the Indus civilization, they're already using what we now recognize as a major scale. You know, um, Hilary, if you think of Julie Andrews running up that hillside, Doa Deer, basically that idea comes all the way from the Indus civilization thousands of years ago and then into the Mesopotamians and through them, ancient Greeks, Romans, and then into the church, into uh, the common era. Well, we, we had different tones and scales in, in what became Western classical music, didn't we, as opposed to, say, the, the pentatonic scales in Chinese music or the microtones you might find in Middle Eastern yes. traditions? What do we have? Yes, absolutely. So if you can imagine, or even if you've got access to a keyboard, you've got black notes and you've got white notes. So some of those white notes sit side by side. There's no black note between them. When they sit side by side like that, it's called a semitone. But um, if you also think of the beginning of Jaws, the theme (laughs) to Jaws, that's a semitone. And then if you have the black notes, if you just take the black notes on their own, none of them sit side by side. There's always a white note between them, and that's called a tone. Sometimes there's even a little bit bigger space than that. So if we just play the black notes, and that's called a pentatonic scale. So it sounds something like, now you're slightly testing me now, but it sounds something like, one, two, three, four, five. So hence pentatonic. And then that means that that sound is completely stress-free because there, there are no sharks. There's no semitones in that sound. So um, a lot of Asian music based around that very relaxed pentatonic scale and Western classical music has gone more down the land of Jaws which is, you know, good and sometimes bad. Well, yeah. And I guess, you know, we should talk about the role of music in society because it wasn't about sitting back and relaxing with your mates, was it, and feeling either calm or stressed. It, it had a social and religious role mainly. Yes, that's right. So going now forward from the Mesopotamians and the Greeks um, coming into the common era, so music, uh, I mean, music's always been around us in terms of folk music. But looking at how music was used by the church initially, so the early basilicas, the very, very early Christian church, 
these were enormous spaces. And you know, Hilary, I mean, we've just had this magnificent weekend of football and uh, of all types. And, mm. um, you know, those huge stadiums, what do we do when we get to a big place like that? We fill it with music. We fill it with song. And so that was absolutely the case for the early Christians. They took from um, Judaism the idea of filling places with song. And so the Basilica, they started to sing, they started to chant until 300-something, so I'm not very good with dates, it might be 400-something, um, a council of church elders got together called the Council of Laodicea, and they decided that the congregation were no longer allowed to sing, and only the people up the front, up by the pulpit, only they were allowed to sing, which is kind of shocking. Mm. Like to think, and this didn't change for over a thousand years. So I don't know whether, Hillary, you've ever had that thing of being in a music lesson, you know, maybe when you were at school and your music teacher would kind of lurk around listening to you sing and then you got a tap on the shoulder to either show that you were good enough supposedly to be in choir or not. Did that did that happen to you? No, and if it had, I would have been very relieved if I was never tapped on the <laughs> shoulder, sadly. Well, yeah, I mean, it happened to a few people and, and it's, you know, we, 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 most of us love to sing. And, um, and and singing, it brings us all together. It's an incredibly powerful thing, as is shown by pub choir as well. Mm. And so, yeah, it wasn't until Martin Luther came along in the 1500s that he changed all that and recognized that singing was an incredibly powerful team-building exercise, basically. Well, yes, but the state recognised that, didn't it, all the way through? And that there's this really interesting thread running through your book about how uh, music has been... Uh part of the mechanisms used to control societies. Tell us a bit about that. Yes. I mean, when if we think about current day very much in Afghanistan, where music is now banned once again uh, by the Taliban, they believe that music should, should just, it's too manipulative and that it goes against the teachings of Islam. So that's from the, the, um, the Taliban's beliefs. So if we go backwards a little bit, um, you know, if we think about people like um, different sides of uh, the French Revolution, music was incredibly powerful during that. You literally had opposing sides singing different songs down the ends, two ends of a street. And then going back further in, but staying in France, going back to something like the 1600s and the Sun King, Louis XIV, I think, um, he knew how powerful music was to keep the nobility entertained because he basically had a lot of the aristocracy locked up a lot of the year at Versailles. I mean, what a glorious prison. Uh, but he knew that he needed to keep them entertained. So he employed all of the best musicians in the land, including a guy called Lully, who died from literally stabbing himself in the foot with his conducting cane and refusing to have any treatment for it. So he uh, unfortunately died from gangrene. Wow. Music as a subversive and political act. That's an interesting element of this this kind yeah. of history of music that Ed LeBrock has written. It's called Sound Bites. You'll know Ed from presenting Weekend Breakfast on ABC Classic and his many other books as well. Um, Ed, you also uh, look at um, the, the way that music has been attached to various kind of class readings. You reference Shakespeare, you know, a person without music in their life is considered suspicious and of poor character. And that 
that was yes. certainly true as, you know, the, the leisured classes came to be in Western Europe, wasn't it? When, you know, you, you're expected to have access to musical lessons and instruments. Absolutely. So a good education to be considered well-educated, you will have, uh, you will be learning an instrument as well. So, you know, back in Shakespeare's time, it would be um, an early keyboard, uh, probably the lute, um, some type of uh, bowed instrument as well, some sort of viol. And uh, yeah, absolutely. With, with Shakespeare saying that uh, the character of, of man and and woman is absolutely defined by what we can do musically. But then there's a little twist in that, which is that for women of that time and for later as well, um, they were expected to be musical and to be able to perform, but don't perform too well. That was uh, this terrible thing that came out at the time. So women were expected to play well enough to attract a husband, but then not so well that they would want to go and perform on the concert stage. Fortunately, some women managed to escape that. Um, for instance, Mozart's older sister, Nanelle, she and her brother toured Europe when they were children. Nanelle considered the better of the two. She was top of the bill. And then um, when she was 18, her father, Leopold, decided, right, that's it. It's unseemly for you to be seen on the concert platform now that you're of marrying age. You need to stay at home and look after me. And so tragically, that's what Nanelle had to do. Yeah, Jane Austen said you had to be accomplished, but not too accomplished. Uh, yes. Yeah, very similar. Um, I yeah. want to backtrack a minute, Ed, and, and talk about rhythm for a minute, because you mm. write these fascinating bits about how, you know, the invention of clocks changed mm. the way people thought about rhythm. What what does the particular yeah. rhythm of a time say about the way people uh, are in those times? Yeah, rhythm is really interesting, isn't it? When we think of, um, I always think of, once again, actually, of Afghanistan when I think of rhythm. Um, so for Western music, a lot of the time we, um, and this is for all types of music in the West, we have a lot of um, pieces with four beats in a bar. So uh, if we think of, let's say, um, a march, like Bada, Ba-da-da-da. Da, da, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So that's in four. Or we can have waltzes in three. In Afghanistan, a lot of the music is, for a Western ear, it sounds a little bit off kilter, a little bit like it's got um, like a, a, an extra leg. So they have pieces which are in five beats in a bar or even seven beats in a bar. And actually, when you're listening to that music in Afghanistan and you're looking at the whole society there, it somehow seems to make sense. But for Western ears, it's like, hang on a minute, what's just happened um, there? So, so a long time ago before music, or just as music was kind of being developed, being written down, so pitches were developed first to be written down. And then rhythm was slowly developed. And it was around the same time as mechanical clocks were invented. Now, I think this is sort of around 1300, 1400. And um, before that, rhythm in music was generally with a three beat. And that was considered a perfect rhythm. It was called a perfect rhythm and very much to do with the church once again and the Holy Trinity. So with clocks, suddenly you have a tick and then you have a talk. 
And that's two, right? Or just you could also have four. And so musicians started to think, hang on a minute, there's this new sound. Maybe we can get away from three and go to two or four. And so that's what they did. And then it started to be codified with the new ways of writing things down as well. So music through these inventions started to be changed. Well, we've got a couple of minutes left and two big questions. How did pop music come about? Because that is my happy place and I really want to know why, you know, where it fits in this grand history of music. Let's start with that. Well, okay. So I, with pop music, pop music's always been around. You know, pop music, I guess, really comes from folk music. But then if you think about pop music, that it's actually only relatively you know, in sort of relatively recent years that it's actually been divided from classical music. And one of the things that I would really love to do with this book is to show that pop music comes out of all of this music development and that really the two are not split at all. You know, pop music is using the same chords and the same notes as Hildegard of Bingen, the nun who was composing things back in 1100, that actually it's one great big long line of music and really there there need be no division. Excellent news from my point of view. And I guess yeah. we should finish up with, Ed, what, what do you think the future of music holds? I mean, you, you write how we've had silence and screams. We've had John Cage. Yes. We've had punk yeah, and yeah. hip-hop. Now we yeah. have the incredible opportunities but also potential threats of digital technology. Where do you see us going mm, with music? Yeah. Look, it's a really good point because if you think about, um, you know, a, a lot of music because it is based on chords and chords in their own way are numbers. So I guess what can be terrifying is that um, pop music, you know, classical music, any type of music, that it may be that it starts to be written by computers. I mean, in some ways it already has. Um, So that's a very worrying trend. But the good trend is that people more and more love to go and hear live music. And that's always going to be with us. And um, pertaining to your previous story as well about learning language, music is a language. And I see more and more people as they go through their adulthood realizing this is something that I want to have in my life. I want to learn an instrument. You know, maybe it's something that we wanted to do when we were younger and for whatever reason couldn't. So we realize how powerful it is for our bodies, for our minds, for our spirit and for our social engagement as well. So I think that the future for music is very, very positive. But what we need to do is make sure that we really fully engage with it and support our local artists, not just the big famous names, the local artists as well. Yeah, and I love how you talk about you know bringing back bringing it back to joy. It should be something that we enjoy and love having in our lives and share with our our families yeah. as well. Ed, thanks so much for speaking with us. It's been lovely to have you here. Just a text just came in from Gilda saying, "Ah, to listen to Ed, I was about to say I'd listen even if he was talking about snails or rugby." And then he did mention <laughs> bringing music to the stadium. What a treat! <laughs> and I agree. Great. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Hilary. Ed LeBrock presents Weekend Breakfast on ABC Classic and his new book, one of many, is called Sound Bites. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.